Hey, do you like movies? You do? Then I bet you're already very familiar with our friends over at Vinegar Syndrome. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. The company was started by cinephiles Joe Rubin and Ryan Emerson and was said to be, quote, perhaps the most important home video label in the world of genre film by the Alamo Draft House. Holy shit, that is one hell of an endorsement. A big part of that is because of a three-step process I lovingly refer to as the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an expansive film archive of over 500 feature films, and they also work closely with archival institutions like the Museum of Modern Art, the Academy... Yeah, MoMA! The Academy Film Archive, the Library of Congress, UCLA, and the Walker Center. I can't even count how many of the releases have either never gotten a physical release or haven't been seen since the days of VHS. Many of these films look better than they have any right to look. My favorite thing about Vinegar Syndrome is that they have their own in-house lab, which they use to restore these films to all of their glory. I can honestly say that I have never seen any grain reduction or digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome was one of our first sponsors, and I'm overjoyed to say that they've stuck with us for five years. I'm still surprised we stuck around for five years, to be completely honest with you. uh, That we've stuck with each other. Yeah, I know. I really thought we'd be done after the first couple months in the first season. We're still keeping, baby! Yeah, we are. So check out their website today to pick up your copies of the Forgotten Jolly Collections 1, 2, and 3. The one might be out of print, so if you see it, make sure you grab it. Satan's Blood, Fade to Black, a VHS favorite amongst a lot of cinephiles that was uh, unable to be released for a very long time. Taxi Girls, Don Coscarelli's Beastmaster, an HBO late night favorite. The 3D film Silent Madness, and the weirdo French Christmas horror film Dial Code Santa Claus, a.k.a. Deadly Game, and many, many more. Visit them today at VinegarSyndrome.com and let them know that the Shameless Picture Show sent you. That's right, VinegarSyndrome.com for all the cult, horror, exploitation, and vintage porn you could ever want. However much that may be. Yeah, exactly. Oh, by the way, I'm coming down from a cold. Okay. So... Might be some coughs. My, I think my voice sounds different. It, it is raspy and sexy. You're also oh, that's you're good. also looking real nice today. I th- you're you got the that nice shirt. You're looking nice and yeah. me on the other. I look like a well. The hair <laughs> is just because I worked yesterday and I didn't take the product out of my hair and I just combed okay. it. So it just kind of reactivated it. And then, like, I've, I've been taking uh, style advice from behind-the-scenes shots of Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> directing, where he's just, like, he's just got, like, partial shirts all the time, button-down short shorts. <laughs> There's, with just a hint of Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, well, just, just a hint of manic. <laughs> And it, like, there's a picture of me from a couple years ago at the Twisted Dreams Film Festival where I feel like I look just like <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, I'm getting to that point in, like, I was joking around with Josephine, who's um, going to be on an episode coming up, and I was joking with, with her about a couple things. Like, one... I, it's weird that, like, I work in, like, a semi-office job now. Like, uh, like I have a desk and shit, right. and like 
I have like computer speakers and I was like blasting punk music at my desk and I was like and she's like well, we're at that point in our punk lives where we are fighting from the inside because <laughs> like I'm wearing my red polo shirt listening to like the dead Kennedys like it's 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 a funny combination and then also like just of me style wise it's like I'm just putting comfort over everything else so it's like I'm also at that point in my punk life where I'm going through my Hawaiian shirt and button down shirt phase I I remember hitting that phase very specifically and I feel like I just recently hit the next phase which is kind of like for for the last several years to possibly a decade I've felt like a grown-up version of a kid. Okay. And just this year, like, now I feel like a full-fledged grown-up that that the, the kid part, like, I... Now I'm not, like, a dad of little kids. Now I'm... Like, my daughter's 11, and now, like, she's rolling her eyes at everything I say. Um, and, and I... Like I, I officially like all the toys that I had in the attic. That were like these are mm-hmm. these are dad's toys. I brought them down to the playroom. The kid like it doesn't make sense for him to sit up in the attic. That kind of stuff is starting yeah. to really yeah. really hit me. It's funny. I, I, I can I, I can think of my my stuff in phases. Like in high school, I was you know like coming with the ripped jeans and the misfit t-shirt and everything but you know i was a fat kid in high school so like i i was always wearing slightly bigger clothes and everything and then there's a certain point in college because like i never used to wear like sleeveless shirts or wife beaters or anything like that but now like i I, during the summer i'm wearing them all the time (laughs) um and you know like i was going through my phase for many summers where it was like you know a sleeveless shirt some darker shorts and like my studded vest like that was my like my 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 look but then i've kind of gotten to the point where like i know i'm a big guy and that's fine and i'm just trying to like i'm trying to do fat daddy chic you i guess is the best way to put you it. you are nailing it and you look fabulous <laughs> like i i just think do you remember that episode of the simpsons where they were telling like like side stories of Springfield and there was that one where Chief Wiggum for whatever reason moved to New Orleans and him and Skinner were had like their own like detective agency yes. and like there's the, the fat mob boss who's just sitting there fanning himself it's like oh it's too hot for that's that's what I'm trying to achieve nailed it welcome to my maison chief I've been expecting you is that so big daddy well expect this the arrest of you by me Yes, yes, and like I've been saying this for many years that like I think men's shorts are far too fucking long, so you're almost at the point of wearing pants. So it's like we got to go back to the short shorts. <laughs> it needs to be acceptable, right? Without further ado, I think we should get to the yeah. Topic. Okay, let me take a sip of cold coffee for the working man. London fog for this working man. Hello and welcome to it. <clears throat> Whoa. Red yeah. leather, yeah. yellow Maybe leather, red leather, yellow leather. The arsonist has oddly shaped It's like you can just feel it right here. Like, it just feels like you just got something right there. <clears throat> okay. Warning. This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. 
Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Myers, and with me, as always, is a man who prefers his carnation salty. Nick Richards. <laughs> On today's episode, we'll be doing another one of our very special double feature episodes, We will, where we will be discussing both Roger Corman's Little Shop of Horrors, as well as the Frank Oz remake slash adaptation of the off-Broadway musical, also titled Little Shop of Horrors. Both films have a very similar plot, so I'm going to do my best to describe them both simultaneously. Because it just seems dumb to say, describe say one so plot much, and say yeah. the exact same one over again. Uh, supposedly inspired off of the short story The Reluctant Orchid by Arthur C. Clarke, Little Shop of Horrors tells the story of Seymour, who works in a little flower shop on Skid Row called Mushniks. The shop is run down and doesn't make much money, but Mushniks' two loyal employees, Seymour and Audrey, are dedicated to the store. Seymour loves plants. But he might love Audrey more. In an attempt to drive up business, Seymour shows everyone this very spe- special plant he has. It's sickly looking and slightly resembles a Venus flytrap. He's named it Audrey 2 or Audrey Jr., depending on which version you're watching. While Seymour has big plans for the plant, he can't seem to make it happy until one night when he accidentally pricks his finger and finds out the plant craves blood. After his discovery and giving into the plant's demands, it begins to grow at an alarming rate, but its bloodlust grows too. Roger Corman's original film was said to have been shot in two days, reusing sets from his previous film, A Bucket of Blood, because he wanted to get more use of out of the sets before they were torn down. That's the story. He had two, maybe two and a half days before the sets were going to be torn down, and he's like, what the fuck can we do? Wow. <laughs> uh, that doesn't include uh, editing, obviously, and it doesn't include... He did he did rehearsals for a couple of days prior, but in terms of actual shooting, it said two days and maybe one night. Um... Working with his stock team of actors and regrouping with screenwriter Charles B. Griffith, Corman and company made an oddball little comedy horror that was favored by audience so much that it was adapted into an off-Broadway musical, which leads directly into Frank Oz's remake, which keeps the same plot as the original, but adds some really fun songs and a phenomenal cast. The 1960 version of Little Shop of Horrors was written by Corman regular Charles B. Griffith, with cinematography credited to Archie uh, Archie R. Dazelle and music by Fred Katz. Oh, sorry, Fred Kratz. The film stars Jonathan Hayes, Jackie Joseph, best known from her uh, role in Gremlins, Mel Wells, Myrtle Vale, and Dick Miller as the carnation eating also of Gremlins patron. <laughs> Yes, they they were married in that. Oh, movie. okay, okay. I always think when I, when I, when I was when I was looking at when I was hearing Audrey talk in the original one, I just eventually clicked when I heard her in Gremlins doing "Try the Thingy." <laughs> you know, she plays the wife. Um, but the 1986 version, directed by Frank Oz, was written by Howard Ashman with cinematography by Robert Painter, with music by Miles Goodman, and songs by Disney regular Alan Menken. The film stars Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, Vincent Gardenia, which is funny considering he plays a flower shop owner, Steve Martin, and Levi, sorry, Levi Stubbs as the voice of Audrey 2. Levi Stubbs, best known for being in the band The Four Tops. Yes. Roll the trailers. Trailer. Feed me. Oh, take it easy, Dracula. What do you think I'm carrying here, my dirty laundry? <laughs> Where a man-eating talking plant 
gives homicide something to think about. And I didn't do it. Do what? Whatever. Ever see this man? Man, see picture. Why are you so nervous? Oh, boy, you kiss good, Audrey. Oh, I guess I just have a good kisser. Now you will do as I say. Yes, master. You will go out and find me some food. Yes, master. What's the matter? Don't you like me? Too bony. Too bony? Nobody ever told me that before. Beef is better than veal. Ah, you're such a dodo. What do you call this? Chopped liver? Another trailer. Tra- trailer, trailer, trailer. Double feature trailer. It all began in this little shop. Ow! Damn roses. Where, strange as it seems, something extraordinary happened. I'm afraid it isn't feeling very well today. Now it's not What kind of a weirdo plant is that, Seymour? Little Shop of Horrors. A story about a boy. I've given you sunlight. I've given you rain. Looks like you're not happy. Unless I open a vein. <laughs> Where did you get such a weird plant? A girl. Get out and make a nice voice when you live on Skidrow, Mr. Mushnick. See, what is this, my Dave, my boyfriend? A florist. I'm telling you, Audrey, he's not a good, clean kind of boy. He's a professional. You'll be a You have a talent for causing pain. Hey! Stop be a People will pay you to be in I've been saving all month for this. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. Feed me Seymour. And a plant. Feed me all night long. How am I supposed to keep on feeding you? Whoa! Catch me now! I'm just a mean, green mother from outer space and I'm playing. I'm just a mean, green mother from outer space and it looks like you've been hanged. Yes! Rick Moranis. Man's a total disgrace to the dental profession. Ellen Green. Excuse me. Excuse me what? That's better. Vincent Gardenia, with special guest appearances by Steve Martin, John Candy, and Bill Murray. It's a professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of Horrors. So, Little Shop of Horrors. This is actually, I've seen the uh, 86. As, As had I. Uh, I feel it's one of it's one of those movies that I feel like was on pretty regular growing up, and I don't know if it was necessarily on TV. If someone had a VHS tape, but I, I definitely remember seeing it. I don't know if I had sat down from first scene to last scene and watched it all in se- sequence, but like you absorbed enough I, I of knew, the parts growing up. To, I knew enough of yeah. the movie that where it's like I definitely yeah. have seen this. Um, but the original one I had never seen up until this viewing. I've owned it on. DVD many times from you know a lot of those horror right, collections right. and whatnot, uh, but the quality was always so bad that I never got around to actually watching. So uh, the the 1960 version is actually in the public domain. Um, yep. So 
uh, it plays on MCTV we, as part of our show Intermission, where we play old public domain films. And so it's been playing for years, but I also had never seen the original. Um, so it's it's been on my radar for a while. And when my daughter the other day asked if we could watch the movie with the man-eating plant, I said, yep, let's watch that. And that kind of spawned this episode. But I actually did a little mini interview with her uh, to get her thoughts on her first viewing of the 1986 version of Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, so that's we'll play adorable. That. Okay, I have here my uh, eldest child, my beautiful daughter, Elena. So, um, Elena, we watched Little Shop of Horrors the other day. Yeah. Was this your first time saying it? Yeah. What did you think? I thought it was good. Yeah, what did you like about it? Um, I liked the voice. What was the girl's name? The, like, the, um... Oh, um, Audrey. Yeah, I liked Audrey the best. Yeah. Like what? her voice when she was singing. Yeah. But her voice when she was talking was pretty great too, right? Yeah. Mr. Mushnip. How about uh, the plant? What did you think of the plant? Audrey too. Yeah, Audrey too. Um it, I liked when um the one part where it's where it kept saying feed me and then they made a song out of it. <laughs> and I liked that part. Yeah. It was funny. Okay, so now that we've talked about Audrey and Audrey Two, yeah. what did you think about Audrey Three? <laughs> and did you recognize Rick Moranis from Ghostbusters? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I did. Was he enjoyable? Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts on Little Shop of Horrors? I liked the three girls that were dancing all the time. Yeah. <laughs> the backup singers. The... My back hurts. <laughs> from leaning over into the microphone. Yeah. Um, is that all you wanted to say about it? Um, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for, for coming on and sharing your thoughts and burping into the microphone like a gross person. Um, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah. Well, <laughs> later. Yeah. So, this is both of our first times for the original. We both, um know the the remake i don't know why i keep wanting to call that the original and i know that's <laughs> it's our original <laughs> it's our original yes um so i guess where, where do you want to start with this i guess thing? let's start with the original and then we can i i think uh then segue into the frank oz version later so what do you think of the original um it was funnier than I expected. Than, than I thought it was going to be. Same. There were like it. It had that like vaudevillian vibe that some of those uh, like late fifties, mid fifties uh, films or or radio programs. It reminded me a lot of like radio dramas. Yeah. Um, and that was probably in part because of the very clear dragnet framing that they put on it to the point that even the yeah. characters of the police officers, uh, Dick and Frank, were taken directly from the dragnet characters. Reading signs and obeying them can sometimes help a confused mind. They tell you which way to turn, when not to turn, where not to drive. 
where not to park. In my business, this sign means something whether you drive or not. Sometimes, if you don't heed it, you'll see this sign. I work here. I carry a badge. But it it did like the whole thing played out like a radio drama, which I have always been a fan of. Whenever I have uh, solo car trips, I try and find you know late night public act uh, or like NPR or something where they're playing the old the old radio dramas. Those uh, always get me. So I I really enjoyed it. Um, I can see why. Um, why Howard and and Alan wanted to remake it? Um, yeah, there's there's something like there's a goofy specialness to the film that it's it like in even though like it's clearly like a monster movie with uh, pulling inspiration from like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and these other you know that that I think came out five or six years before this. Um, mm-hmm. it really like, it was a comedy at, at its yeah. core that, um, uh, really worked for me. Yeah. And actually, cause like, I didn't know quite what to expect out of the original little shop of horrors. Like I knew Roger Corman's oeuvre of films or what the types of films that he makes. Yeah. And a lot of Vincent some Price are, stuff. Yeah, some are some are really fun. Some are taken a little bit more seriously, but ultimately, I never really took um, Roger Corman as a a director of comedy. A lot of his stuff is usually unintentionally funny or a little <laughs> campy, but it's like it's never like he's. And I I know there. I'm sure there's films out there that are the exception to this yeah, rule. Right. But I feel like as as a whole, he's known as more of a horror director or a sci-fi director and he, who's taking his material rather seriously. You know, any camp that comes from it is probably from the actors taking this stuff seriously. Right. You know? Um, like Vincent Price, he's, he's, he's never doing these performances tongue-in-cheek. He's performing... But just sometimes the the audacity of what the fuck he's doing is just kind of transcends like, through it. Yeah, it's all taken very seriously, but because it ends up being a little bit bigger than life in so many ways yep. that it ends up being like you're laughing at or with them even though they're not laughing, <laughs> if that makes yeah, any so, sense. Like, so like when I, when I went into this film, I was kind of expecting that, but... I, same as you, I was really surprised by how funny it was. So, like, when we first meet um, Seymour, you know, he's tripping over stuff or whatever. It's like, okay, they're trying to make him seem like a... Like a Bumbling. Like a, like a, like a yep. doofus. Yes. Um, but, like, I... The moment that it sunk in is like, oh, this is not what I'm expecting to be at all, is when Dick Miller shows up, completely straight-faced, orders those flowers, and just starts eating. That was my Thrill House moment. Thrill House! Like, that was my to too. see this guy just like he's he's or, first he orders the flowers and he's like okay you want a dozen he starts salting them and chewing on them like that I'm I'm in I'm in yeah <laughs> it's like that's that that's a, that's a great you know introductory paragraph or whatever yeah. and especially because you know like Dick Miller he is phenomenal at playing a straight role for right. comedy right the the you know, Leslie like, Nielsen comedic straight yes. man kind of. Yes, so it's like as like oh that's the type of movie this is going to be, and I was actually a little sad that that character or a character like him didn't show up in the remake. Um, I, I would then, associate him with Christopher Guest's role 
a little bit where he comes in and goes, what a strange and unusual plant in the window. Hey, well, I'm here. Like, it's not to the same degree, but that was the, conne- that was the connection yeah. that I made uh, when I saw that role. Yeah. Um, but, like, what I found so charming about both films, but especially in the original one, was was the performances. Like, these, you know, these are all... For the most part, really good actors who are who are really performing. Like I actually thought that um, uh, Jonathan Hayes playing Seymour and then acting opposite uh, Jackie Joseph, I thought they were they had great on on screen ke- uh, chemistry, and like I just really loved watching them together. And yeah, like, I just I had a great time watching this yeah. film. I really did. Yeah. Uh, I. It's it's hard not to draw comparisons to the remake, yeah. and I'm trying hard not to because this film does stand on its own. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyone of our generation who has seen, you know, most of us have seen Little Shop of Horrors. It's your as we say over and over again, your experience with a film is dictated by the expectations you have going in. Um, so it's hard to filter that out. I I would say that I liked the 1986 one better. Me too. Me too. Uh, I think it's a better film. I think it's funnier. But I'm also but I also grew like com- comedic style changes. So yeah. like the 1986 version was speaking to people of our generation. Um, yeah. So well, so that- I think. Oh, sorry. Like, I, I agree with what you said, where they had great chemistry, they were great actors, and at the same time, there's this little tick in the back of my brain that wants to keep saying, yeah, but the other one did it so much better. And yeah, and to anyone, I, I, I guess the, to anyone who says there's no point in remaking something that's ever been remade, this is the 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 golden example that I would hold up and say... Find things that you're inspired by and remake them, you know, because it was done so successfully. Yes, and I do want to touch on that in a second, but, like, what I was going to say is this film gives gives that remake so much to work yes. with. Because it's like, you know, there's there's a lot of people online saying, that like, oh, you should remake the bad movies instead of the good ones or whatever like that. But it's like, all, all intents and purposes, the original Little Shop of Horrors is a really good, if not great, little yes. movie. yep. And they somehow made a better movie yes. out of it. So I don't necessarily believe in that. I, just, I believe you should be passionate about it. But like one thing I, I was really thrown by, you, you'd said it perfectly, humor changes over yeah. the years. I was surprised by how forward-thinking and, con- and funny in a very contemporary way the 1960s Little Shop of Horrors yeah. was. Like, and then like how much th- – th- there's like – there's. There's things in this film that sh- in the 1960s film that I feel like were v- probably very risque in the 1960s, like uh, you know Seymour interacting with a prostitute, <laughs> um, yeah. and that that whole sequence was funny. Or like even just how dark the ending is for this. Right. Film. The fir- like the original one's ending is far darker, I'd say, than than the yes, remake. Totally. The remake's ending is a lot more hopeful. Yeah. To an extent, um, but like, I remember like being slightly bummed out when like he he you know spoiler alert, when uh, 
Seymour I, I, uh, draxed that plant, you know, he, so I got to kill from the inside. <laughs> Jumped in the plant trying to kill it and then essentially sacrificed himself and then became part yeah. of the plant himself. That was so... I didn't mean it. That was one of the really fun surprises of the original is how, like, the faces showed up on the little blooms. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what gave him yeah. away, like... <laughs> Uh, and then, like, I was surprised by like what stuff that like if like if gun to my head, I would have sworn was an addition like to the remake. How much stuff was there? Yeah, like the sadist dentist, right? Right. And, and not only the sadist dentist, but the the guy who's really into <laughs> the, the, it, the masochist. You know, most people don't like to go to the dentist, but I rather enjoy it myself. Don't you? <laughs> I mean, there's such there's a real feeling of growth of of progress when that, that old drill goes in. I mean, I'd almost rather go to the dentist than anywhere, wouldn't you? Yeah. Now, no Novocaine. It dulls the senses. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, that got past the censors in 1960? What? And certainly the Steve Martin, Bill Murray one, like, amped it up and, yep. and made it more intense but also more funny. But the I I think going back to what you were saying about like remaking bad movies versus remaking good movies or whatever, it's not so much about the quality of the film as much as the the original Little Shop of Horrors created a world that was ripe for play. Like it was it was a really fun sandbox that could yeah. That was an amazing jumping off point to do more with. And that's yes. not a fault 100%. of the original. It's It makes the original wonderful and makes it worth doing more with. I think all of these franchise films that we grew up with, Alien, Terminator, like what, uh, what made them so successful as a franchise is that they created a world that you wanted yeah. to spend more time in. And, yeah, and that's I completely agree. Even though it was a remake versus like a sequel, um, it I think that is the core of why the second one was so good is because those for, for, pardon the pun, but the seeds were planted. Uh, of a, <laughs> I see what you did there. Botany ah. joke. <laughs> it, um, it really no, stems like- from that. <laughs> Plants. <laughs> but I no, like, spit out my drink. <laughs> there you go. But like, what I actually like find so fascinating, like I said, is when I when I said in my introduction, like this film was shot in like two, maybe That's three bananas. days at most. Can you imagine? <laughs> and like, what all they were able to accomplish, and what like. You know, you, you hear about a movie being shot in two, like, or let's just be liberal and say three days, and you're like, oh, that's going to be rough. And, you know, like, everything they're able to do, and they created a legacy for this yeah. film, and, um, yeah, like, it's, you know, you think about something like the 48-hour film festival, <laughs> like, and that seems tough. And you're, yeah. Granted, you have to do everything writing and editing yes, within that yeah. time, but still, St- yeah. like... Like, the idea of shooting, like, this many setups and this much going on in, in three days at most, like, that just seems nuts yes, to me. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it's also, like, the I guess the other side of that is 
as an indie filmmaker, it's easy to get discouraged by what the films you want to make won't be. You know, it's um, and and fear that it won't get out into the world. So why bother? You want to believe that the filmmaking, the indie filmmaking spirit, will will is worthwhile and will drive creativity yep. and 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 put things out into the world. And that's a great example of it actually happening. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and I, it's just resourcefulness. It's like here I made another film using these sets. It's actually kind of a similar plot line. Too. <laughs> um, it's just instead of a plant, like he's killing. He, he, he this an artist actually played by Dick Miller oh, okay. realizes that his artwork is significantly better um, if there's something more behind it, like like pain or what have you. Uh, and he finds that he can make uh, this this phenomenal shade of red in his paintings by using blood. So it's you know. And then he starts killing people to, to get to feed his art instead of feeding a plant. Yeah, yeah. So it's a similar plot line. Um and I just I love that like he's like, okay, here's what we have. And like that was an early lesson I learned in filmmaking. I didn't always follow it. Um but like that was one of the first things that I learned from the filmmaker Robert Rodriguez when he made El Mariachi. He was like, you know, my my personal rule for filmmaking when I was especially when I was getting started, was I take inventory of what do I have what can I use? And I built a story around it. He's like, I had a, a small Mexican town I knew I could use because I had origins there. I had a a mariachi guitar, and I had a turtle. <laughs> and he, so he's like, what can I make with this? And he just developed a plot around that. And he's like, you know, it's like if it, he's like if you're if you're a young filmmaker and you want to make a movie. You know, and your dad owns a liquor store. Make a movie about a liquor store instead of doing your big sci-fi. That is exactly what I did with normal. Like, I knew I could use a yeah. tattoo shop. Cornfields are, you know, you can shoot at anybody's cornfield out there. Um, so, like, I, I, as I was right, I had no idea what the story was, where it was going. But I knew I was inspired by people that I knew out there and kind of the, the weird, wacky characters that I was running into every day. And so I took them as inspiration i took the sets that would look interesting that i had access to and that was 100 yep. percent what what dictated the story yeah yeah and i think it's a it's a good challenge and like i said roger carman took it to heart and you know and you you hear notorious stories all the time where he's like he'll give you x amount of days x amount of money and that's all you get yeah. and you have to get creative and actually um um Ron Howard talks about like learning that shit from Roger Corman, like you know that like you don't have any extra money. And so he said like even when he was making big Hollywood films, like Far and Away with Nicole Kidman and and Tom Cruise, he's he, there was a specific shot he wanted to get on top of a hill and get certain lighting as the sun's going down. And he's like he's like realistically, I know I probably could have convinced the studio to get me an extra day and all this other shit. But he's like but he's like but. That's not the Roger Corman way. So he's like, I had Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman carrying equipment, and all three of us were running up a hill just so I can get this last shot before the sun goes down. I like. I have found that um, that when you're when you're creating possibility, the the infinite nature of of creative possibility 
is mm-hmm. I find it stifling and intimidating. So the more restrictions yeah. I have, the easier it is for me to actually create because I'm not thinking about what it could be or what it should be. I'm thinking about what what okay if here are, are the it it's it's like the um mark, restaurant marketing with menus how smaller menus or there's a certain size of options on a menu that is kind of the sweet spot where mm-hmm. you have choices but not so many choices that you get the analysis paralysis right so yeah. so I, and i found that is true with with my own filmmaking so i i I mean, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, but I I think if I had unlimited resources, I would probably lock up. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, like, I, I know that feeling. Well, first off, the restaurant analogy is perfect, because, like, if anyone's ever been to a cheesecake factory, their menu is intimidating. It's or like any, like, pages. Greek diner in the Midwest, where they, yeah. like, keep folding out. Yeah, um, but, like, when I made love you still uh for milwaukee film i how i got that job that was a real job was i i I pitched my idea to milwaukee film and they liked it and they created a budget and everything and i had a good size budget on that film um i had a full a full crew wasn't just like me and my friends getting together (laughs) and be like can you strike this light and roll sound at the same time and shit like that like i had dedicated people and like at one point, like like I I know that feeling because it's like at one point I was like okay, um, I was like we we need to do some night shoot. Like there's like there's a point in this film where it's supposed to take place at night, but we can't do night shoots because we have high schoolers on on the set. And like at some point it can be freeing, being like oh we need to do a night shoot. How can we do? And then like we we broke and then came back and then they had the house set up that we were shooting completely blacked out and had fake moonlight coming in. Like oh fuck. You guys made it nighttime. <laughs> but then there was other times where they were like, okay, how do you want to shoot this? And I have so many options, so many, like, I got an entire lens kit. I have both a steady cam, a dolly, a crane, <laughs> all this other stuff. And they're like, well, how do you want to do this? I'm like, uh, um, <laughs> Let's, uh, that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, it, you know, and, and, um, and I'll be the first to admit, I, at one point, I, in one of the scenes where we fell behind because I was struggling to figure out, like, how I wanted to shoot the scene. And I had to have my AD, my AD kind of stepped in and had to orchestrate some shit around me because I was I was a new I was a new director and I never worked with a crew yeah. like that so that's yeah. what they're there to help me with but um, yeah I completely agree sometimes it, like when you know it's like okay I have two lenses and you know maybe a dolly right. it, it limits your choices but it, it it's like okay what's the best way to shoot it with what we right. have <laughs> you using the fifty or the eighty five. <laughs> Oh, we're going to have to use the 50 because the focus is locked on the 85, so we can only use it for stationary shots. Well, fuck, the 50 it is. uh, Just since we're going down this deep, deep rabbit hole, um, uh, I was the DP on a buddy of mine's film. I really, I love this film. Uh, It's called uh, Tree. It's kind of a Twilight Zone-esque um cool. mini feature it was like 45 minutes to 50 minutes so it was hard to market but it was shot re- like we it it was a pretty good final product i was really proud of it this was in the days when dslr filmmaking was first <laughs> happening yep. and so we all had yep. hd camcorders but we wanted 
the quality of lenses and variety of lenses from the DSLRs. So there were several companies that came out with adapters to put on the camcorder lens so that you could use DSLR lenses on it. And it makes the red like 17 feet long by the time it's all done. But Yeah, those camcorders weren't light. <laughs> but so it's like the first or second day on set. And the something, ha- I think the the adapter that we had, like one of the internal rings shifted and locked up and and the, the lens like locked into it but it also did it in a way that was no longer functional and we lost half of a day just like with tiny little screwdrivers trying to rebuild <laughs> this lens adapter yeah and actually that that reminds me too well we will get back to little, ho- uh, <laughs> Let, little, little house, house little on the horrors we're talking about how limitations create creativity and you hear it all the time you hear people talk yeah. about it but you don't always necessarily get practical examples one of my favorite practical examples of is of how limitations can create a distinct style is actually george a romero when he was making night of the living dead because he was shooting that film on 16 millimeter and uh was shooting sync sound on that film uh the issue was you with the way that um that camera was set up any if he could only roll sync sound because it was so fucking heavy um if it's on a tripod okay so anytime he had to take it off a tripod and they didn't have a dolly or anything like that so like any movement shots or whatever they had to shoot silent okay so um you know they, they could put sound in later on and everything but they couldn't have like you know they couldn't have like handheld dialogue shots or everything so it was pretty much just for action so um, he orchestrated his scenes in a very unique way, uh, and he took his time shooting the news and documentary filmmaking as the the way that he kind of like staged his scenes, where he tried to shoot everything in a master and would have characters walk in and out of frame so often, so that way he always gave himself a feeling that the camera was moving. So if he had a character walk into the door, say something, and then walk off camera, and then he changes shots and have them walk into that frame you get the feeling that the camera's constantly moving and not just like you're shooting everything in one shot and that all came to be because he couldn't roll sound and move the camera at the same time (laughs) that's great (laughs) yeah or like even robert rodriguez talks about that where uh he couldn't roll sync sound when he was shooting el mariachi so he would shoot the scene shoot the take and then shoot it Right afterwards, with into a microphone with the character character saying their dialogue, and then would tr- and have them hit it exactly the same way, and they would try to sync it in oh, post, God. and and he would put it together in post, and if at any point the person talking goes out of sync, that's when he'd cut the camera to a different <laughs> shot. And I used that on one of my own films. That's awesome. I used that on From the Darkness Theater because we didn't have a very good sound recordist. Nothing against them. They just, you know, they hadn't done it yeah. very much. Um, and the all the takes, like the best takes, like when I was doing a close-up of my main character, his dialogue was too low. was too quiet. But when we shot the reverse, his dialogue was louder in that take. 
So I'd use all the audio from his reverse, but thankfully my actor is so good at hitting it almost the exact same way, I was able to almost nice. sync it up. And any time it didn't sync, I'd cut the fucking camera. <laughs> I'd cut to a different shot. I had um, a tech issue on normal. We were doing this outdoor scene right by a road. So we were already having audio issues, but then when we got it back, the the files were like corrupt the it was a technical problem with the recording Dude. unit and we had to yeah. adr the entire scene and it was no. just a nightmare oh adr sucks <laughs> um but that actually i think that leads very nicely into little shop of horrors nice. because that's a musical right? and they have to <laughs> adr everything so I think we'd said everything we need to say about the 1960s Little yeah. Shop of Horrors because it really plays into uh, our love and admiration for the remake. And I love this film. Um, the The music is phenomenal. And like I said, a big part of that is because of who wrote it. Alan yeah. Menken and Howard yeah. Ashman, who wrote some of the best songs of Disney's heyday. <laughs> ha- uh, have you seen the documentary Howard? No, um, I did. It's it's a good documentary. It um, kind of dives into just like the AIDS epidemic of that era, um, but so much. Uh, I I was surprised how much Little Shop was in there because that from from what I gather was kind of a. Um, it, it was you know before he was working primarily on Broadway and off Broadway. Um, and so then Little Shop happened, and I don't remember the exact connections, but that's when he started doing the Disney stuff, which is what he's more well known for. Yeah, and I, I hadn't seen that, but I have seen the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty, which is about, uh, it's from 2009, it's centered around the, uh, Disney's renaissance. Okay. Um, and it talks pretty in depth about, you know, uh, especially him working on Little Mermaid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so, like, it's, you know, he, he, he was a hell of a songwriter. Yeah. And so was Alan Menken, don't get me wrong. Um, but, you know, lyrically is where, you know, Howard Ashman wrote the songs. And, and, I, and I th- the, growing up, I was never a huge fan of musicals. And that didn't necessarily have anything against them. I just, I thought, mo- when I thought of musicals, I cats. thought of, <laughs> no, not even oh. Cats. I thought of, like, Meet Me in St. Louis oh, okay. and shit like that. And things that, like, just when I was a kid, I just, I had no interest yeah. in. I didn't really, you know, the, 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 they didn't feel overly organic. It's just, like, it's just, you know, boring people singing uninteresting <laughs> songs. That's just the way I felt when I was Sci-fi a kid. Sci-fi is lab coke porn <laughs> and yeah. musicals. <laughs> <laughs> was boring white people in in ornate gowns singing like I just like right. I thought of a musical as like oh I bet Julie, Judy Garland right. in this the I music just, man just, and um, yeah. yeah like I liked I liked Wizard of Oz because it felt different um, but like Little Shop of Horrors was one that I always really liked I um, and because I think it had like it, it's the music felt. Even though it's very inspired by like the fifties and doo wop and, and R and B, it felt more contemporary <laughs> than a lot of those old musicals, which just kind of had their their Hollywood the, classic style of music. The storytelling style was modern, and it was using fifties style to like, but but in a very modern storytelling sense. Yeah, like to me, 
for me, and once again, there's always going to be exceptions to this rule. I I think of like old classic um, musicals, and the scenes are really built to lead into the music. Yeah. Whereas the musicals that I, I seem to relate to um, are something like this, where the scene plays out the way it's supposed to, and then when emotions are so high, and there's no other way to say what you're going to say, then you sing. And for in the in the case of Little Shop, I found that it the music was used to like tell a lot of story in a short period of time, and then get to yeah. the funny, silly, entertaining bits that were not necessary. I mean, but even the songs were entertaining. Here, here's maybe my my take on that thought is that okay the the older musicals that we're referencing it's more like a concert strung together loosely with story where you're you're there for the songs and there doesn't seem to be that much narrative sinew (coughs) holding them all together whereas more modern musicals and again gross generalization that's that's a fair critique of my comments um but the modern musicals are just as good story-wise as any other great movie that you're seeing that just happens to include songs mm-hmm. so you don't yeah. you don't watch little shop of horrors like you would a concert or an opera or something yeah yeah and, and ultimately i think that's ultimately it like it's it's, it's story like the reason like I, we had just watched it for this season, and, but if someone asked me what Meet Me in St. Louis is about, I don't know if I could tell. Right. Them. But um, you know something like Wizard of Oz. You that's know, a big, there's songs in it, but big story. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a big story behind that, or Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> right. You know, there are musicals that. There's music in the films, but you don't feel like that's the only thing they are selling yeah. it on, or maybe the um, only thing that relates to us. Or as like a, well, like West Side Story yeah. is another one. Go, going back to what we've said multiple times about how like not every movie is for everyone, and there are definitely movies yeah. that aren't geared towards us. Maybe it's that these stories we connect with these stories and we don't necessarily connect with the stories, even though we both had very positive things to say about Meet Me in St. Louis. And, um, oh, 100%. And it kind of surprised us both. But um, the the stereotype of the old films, based on our stereotypes of our generation, um, versus how we interact with the musicals of our generation... Um, it, with the exception of Cats, which is universally panned <laughs> and hated by most people. I have no interest in seeing it. <laughs> Even without the buttholes? <laughs> well, the buttholes is what was selling, oh, okay. to be honest with you. I'll, I'll watch an hour and a half of buttholes. <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. What else have I got going on? <laughs> oh, goodness. But no, no, so, like, this, a movie like this is, is perfectly within my sweet spot, where it's got... You know, it's like when I just very recently watched Moana. Like, the movie, I had just first seen it for the first time, and it's like the movie itself has got a phenomenal story, and then the songs on top of it It are good. It is so good. Well, there's definitely, like, I love some of the old Elvis musicals where the songs are great, but everything else is pretty shitty. Like, this is a film where 
it's got a little bit of everything. I loved the way that they built upon the relationship of Seymour and Audrey. Yep. Like, um, and like, I just, uh, the performance in this film by Ellen Green, the way, like, she's, like, very clearly paying tribute to Jackie Joseph, but also doing her own yes, thing. Yes, t- tipping it like, up. It is so good. She's so good. And then, like, the first time she, like, she sang and she really belted it out, me and Amanda were like, how is she singing, doing this voice? The, the way that her, her voice, like, breaks in her songs mm. is so good. I can't, like, I don't yeah. understand how, like, the breaking of her voice gives me a chill up my spine, but it does every time. Me, me too, and I can't quite <laughs> explain why. And it's, like, the fact that, like, because I feel like I've heard Ellen Green in other things before, and that's not how she talks. Okay. Um, and so she's doing a voice, and, and I could be wrong, but I really do think she's doing a voice because I, I feel like I've seen her in other things before. Um, and I was expecting her when she started singing that like she would just drop <laughs> that voice and her natural singing voice would come out, but she manages to sing in that voice, and it's just even more impressive. Right, right, that she carried it through so strong. Yeah, and and for me, what I liked about this movie too is it it, it really does feel like it's a love letter to the original film while doing its own right. thing. Yeah, and I and I feel like Frank Oz was such a perfect choice for this because I always felt like so you you, you ha- when you have Frank Oz and you have Jim Henson, um, it almost feels like they're yin and yang of each other, or like a Steve Jobs and Wozniak, type. right? Like they work best together, or like a, like a, a Paul McCartney and John Lennon, where it's like one's a little bit more whimsical and one's a little darker, but they still both have that whimsy and darkness yeah. to them. I feel like Frank Oz is the slightly darker of the <laughs> two of them. Um, just based on the types of films that he's directed. And he's such a perfect choice for this, especially with the effects that are going on in this film. And, like, I had read somewhere that originally, I think Martin Scorsese was going to direct this film, and I just cannot see anyone else doing it. I would this. love to see that film, though. <laughs> I would, too. It's just, I feel like it'd be a different film. Yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> no, I think... There was something really fun about the plant, the physical effects of the plant in the original that, again, harkened back to mm-hmm. Invasion of the Body Snatchers with the, the sci-fi pods, you know. Um, yeah. But, but hot damn, the, the Frank Oz, you know, Jim Henson, like, plant is so good. Especially with, yeah. with that voice. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's... Like, I don't think we're necessarily bringing anything new to the analysis of Little Shop of Horrors, other than this is when people get really up in arms about remakes. I'm always a very open-minded person about it because, one, I don't believe a remake, no matter how good or how bad it is, hurts the original film in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't hurt your childhood. (laughs) It doesn't do any of that because that film is still there. I think a good remake can either, in some cases, replace the original film. Not necessarily in a bad, in insidious or in a bad way, but think about John Carpenter's The Thing. Okay. Like, how many people don't even know there's another film called The Thing? And I, like, I am one of those people. Re- <laughs> I didn't realize yeah, it, it was a remake. 
Yeah, it's a remake of a, a movie called a, a Thing from Another World, I believe okay. it is. Um, and, you know, because John Carpenter loved that film and wanted to do his own version yeah. of it. Um, and if anything, it, you know, at worst, like, I think they could, it, at worst, they would just, it's, you know, I, I would just forget about it, like the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Yeah. But then there's some of them where it's like, okay, maybe this wasn't a good remake, but I think it's an interesting companion piece. I felt that about uh, the Child's Play remake. Like, they yes. they brought a new it it was worth them remaking because they started like it, it was an interesting commentary on what humans will how we will in could influence artificial intelligence where that yeah. wasn't that had no, that was never in the originals mm-hmm. like that was about mm-hmm. a murderer's spirit going into a doll and it was a slasher film like there was no like commentary yeah. on on you know futurism <laughs> yeah so i'm a, i'm actually a big a big fan a proponent of remakes or readaptations or reimaginings you know and they're um, and they're not all side quill you know side quills yeah. requills whatever you want to call them you know like i just saw the um spiral from the book of saw that you know it's 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 it takes place in the same universe but you don't have to have seen the previous eight films okay. you just have to know the character of Jigsaw is a serial killer. That's all you is get. is that the one with Chris Rock that it yeah. just came out? I was yeah, I saw it. a little bit about it, um, and it kind of reinterested. Like I think I saw the first four Saw films with each. Like me thinking the first one was really great, and then subsequently worse, subsequently worse, subsequently worse, and then I just kind of dropped off the map. But. That actually, like, I was interested in seeing that one. What I think this film does well is it took it goes back to what I liked about the first one, which is it's kind of a police procedural about trying to find this person. Well, I guess the first one is not complete. There's that aspect, to yeah, it, running congruently. But like, you know, pretty much every Saw film is it's like. You know, here's our group of characters, and here's what they did, and now they have to escape. There's a little bit of that, but it's really about trying to catch who's ever doing right. this. Um, so, like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I've never been one to... I'm sure I had my um, anti-remake fervor at one point <laughs> when I was a pretentious <laughs> film kid. Uh, but I just, there's no point in getting upset about right. them. But just don't watch them. Right. If, if you're that... It's it's the... the and feeling of entitlement that my opinion should be shared by others that the internet fosters so feverishly. And if anything, it brings new love back to the original piece. Yep. You know, because like if so, if a, if a, there's a really good remake, like I'm like, let's say Little Shop of Horrors, it'll get people reinvent re reinterested in maybe the original one, especially because they always say you know, and based on characters by or based on blank. And they're like, oh, there's an original one? What's right. that like? Let me go see that. Or if anything, if, if a remake's terrible, then we're like, well, shit, this is based on another movie. Is that one better? <laughs> right. Because people are always worried that if a remake's bad, that it's going to hurt the original. Like, well, now people aren't going to go see the original one. I don't think no, that's the I don't, case. I... The only way that someone's going to be like, if they see a remake and they hadn't seen the original one and they hated the remake, I think the only way they won't go see the original, like, you know, they uh, is if it's just not their type of film. Like oh I I don't I, I I decided to check out the Friday the Thirteenth remake. I'm not a huge fan of slashers. I didn't like this. So I'm probably not going to like yeah. the original. You know, like maybe that. But 
whatever. But no, I think I think um, Little Shop of Horrors is is as close to a perfect remake as as you're ever gonna get because it's it's there's some remakes that go the route of changing the original film and doing its own thing completely. Um, and that's perfectly fine, but this film does the exact same story, just in its own style, and elevates the material. Yeah. And even the the own style, like it's still rooted in the st- the what made the first one interesting. Like it didn't just you know totally reinvent it. It took those funny bits and the silliness of the first one, the dark silliness, and freshened it and and amplified it yeah and then i think this this review on letterbox pretty much sums up the movie perfectly (laughs) it's by a reviewer named holly beth she gave it five stars and she says this was fucking wild i can't believe i just watched steve martin fuck bill murray on a dentist chair (laughs) and bill murray loved it (laughs) Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And like, it's funny. So when I, I, I when I when I rewatched the films, I, I watched the '86 version first um, because I knew that was cause Emma was still with us and Amanda, and I was like, I think this is going to be the more crowd pleasing version of it. And if anything, I can watch the original one. Of my right. Own. And Amanda, I think, has seen it. I think actually both of them had seen it, but like when that Bill Murray scene came up, because like I've been pretty vocal about <laughs> yeah. like Bill Murray this yeah. year, and I have to say it's not that I just like Bill Murray. I just like this is like Bill Murray in so far one specific film, but it's like I, I th- that was such a perfect role for him because it was different than the characters he was playing. Yeah. You know, but like, but still um, very but like it. Yeah, it's a very Bill Murray role. <laughs> um, and plus, I also get a lot of shit because I, I often say that I think Dan Aykroyd's a better actor in overall. <laughs> I, I don't disagree. I think Bill Murray is funnier if if you yes. can filter out the like the misogyny issues, which are valid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but I, I think, think Dan Aykroyd is a better actor. Is the better, especially I just rewatched My Girl. And he's oh yeah. <laughs> um, but like when I, and I was like, and then when I watched the original one, and I was like, oh shit, they're actually going to do this, and then I was like. That's Jack Jack Nicholson. It's like casting Bill Murray to play Jack yep. Nicholson's. Like, that is perfect, especially because like Jack Nicholson wasn't a huge star right. at this time. I think but, it was like, his like fourth or fifth role. By the time that people probably started discovering this film, he was a bigger yep. star. So it's like going back. It's like wait, Jack Nicholson's doing this role? What? And so then it just it feels it feels so appropriate to have an actor on the caliber of Bill Murray doing that instead of, as opposed to some no no name. Yeah, right. It's like that. That's perfect. <laughs> and even like st- I think the while the dentist role was interesting in the original, it didn't like the performance didn't blow me away or anything where it's No, no. Steve no. It's kind of he was a body count. Yeah. They they added that character because they needed a body count and they needed him to have just a little bit more than just being a body count. He was integral to the plot in the 86 version. And not only that, but it adds catharsis for, you know, why him? Right. Why is Seymour is going to go after you need him? Blood and, adds and he's got plenty more, enough. <laughs> it, it adds more drama to it because, you know, Seymour's not a killer, but here's a person 
who he doesn't like, who is mistreating the woman he loves, and this plant, which I think it was so smart to have him talk, is pretty much, you know, just egging him on. It's like, it, it works so much better. Yeah, yeah. And Steve Martin made that role so delightfully silly and goofy. Yes. Which, again, helps because you they had to make him a total monster in order for that to work. Mm-hmm. But then the goofiness of it, too, like, helped it become, not, or prevented the film from going too dark. Say, ah! Oh. Ah! Say, ah! ah. Say, ah! ah. Now spit! Uh, it, it kept it in that realm of, like, really, really silly darkness. Yeah. And I loved his uh, his reaction to Bill Murray loving the the dentistry. Like he was getting so frustrated by the fact that Bill Murray was enjoying it, <laughs> which usually <laughs> yeah. the Sado Masso team up is like, oh, perfect, somebody who likes to inflict pain and somebody who likes to receive pain. Yeah. But it was really frustrating him, which I found so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Fun little piece of trivia I'm seeing here on Wikipedia. Apparently, they the studio originally wanted Cindy Lauper for this for the role of Audrey. Okay, I could see it. It wouldn't it wouldn't have been the piece that it is now because Ellen Green's performance is so fucking iconic for this film. But it still would have been a great film with Cindy Lauper. This film has a lot of great actors and has some of the biggest actors of the '80s in it. And Ellen Green outshines them all. Yeah, yeah. I will dare. I will. I will go on record in saying <laughs> that. Like when you've got a movie that has Steve Martin, Bill Murray in a small part. Rick well, Moranis. yeah, and we're not even we're we're not highlighting Rick Moranis. No, and he did he, phenomenal. He. This is the role that he was born to play, <laughs> and it's funny. Like you look at Rick Moranis' early career doing the Bob and Doug McKenzie stuff. Like it's kind of interesting how this character came to be. Because, like, it's like, you know, so he was doing the Bob and Doug yeah. stuff early on, where, you know, it's very Canadian, you know, <laughs> kind of like, well, honestly, and that, it just reminds me of, of Wisconsin bros, honestly. Right. It wasn't uh, that from a Canadian sketch comedy show originally? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could think um, uh, SCTV. Yeah, okay. And I think he was doing TV, but, like, he, he was doing SCTV for a while, um, and then he... He did Ghostbusters in 84, and that kind of built his character from here on out. Like, that style of character, because, like, you know, then he did Little Shop later on. He eventually did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, (laughs) Parenthood, which he's phenomenal in. Um, No, like, this this is, when I think of Rick Moranis, this is the role I think of him in. Sure. And, like, it's it's such a... I keep saying perfect role for him, but I, I can't think of another way to describe it <laughs> where he was um, simultaneously shy but outgoing at the same time. And he had a better voice than I would have given him credit for. And <laughs> I don't know. He's just – I don't know what else to say about He's him. so charming in it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, in that uh, nerdy way, it's just he's really endearing. 
Yes, 100%. Especially given that he's a killer. <laughs> like yes. The fact that they made this sympathetic, charming killer, uh, not in the, like, Dexter kind of way, but like this, like, meek, like, cute um, kind of way. It's, uh, it, again, Rick Moranis, I, you put anybody else in that role and it's not quite as good. I can't think of a single person in the 80s who could have done that yeah. role. Um, but Like, maybe Aykroyd, but not... And, like, that even doesn't yeah. seem to work. And But back to your original point, Ellen Green, it, despite how good everyone is, Ellen Green really just knocked it out of the park. Yes. Yes. Like... And honestly, there's a lot of reasons why I'm going to come back to this film, but she's a big part of it. Uh, her and the the music for me, the, yeah. the music is so good. And in the scene where her and 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 uh, um, uh, Seymour are singing to each other, and they have their big romantic scene, like I, I so, suddenly Seymour, oh. yeah, or her. Uh, I loved also the song. Um, Somewhere that's green, where she's picturing this perfect life yes. away from Skid Row, and it's so simple and humble and silly and fifties. In between our frozen dinner and our bedtime, nine fifteen, we snuggle watching Lucy on a big enormous twelve-inch screen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All the lyrics are so funny. Um, she's giving Tupperware parties in her big Donna Reed dresses, and uh, it's so, it's so like, and and Ellen, it works because Ellen Green sells it so well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, I think my thrill house moment of this movie was the like, because I was enjoying it when I began it, but like the introduction of Steve Martin's character. <laughs> Was my thrill house moment, like, when, and especially because I was like, like as the movie's going on, I was like, wait, you guys want me to believe that Steve Martin's going to be an asshole? Because like Steve Martin was always like, I just think of him like you know, father of the bride and shit like that. But then like I, I nearly spit out my drink when he got off the motorcycle and it kept going and he just pointed at it and it stops. <laughs> And I was like, okay, you guys are going to try to make me believe that Steve Martin's an asshole. And they made me believe it. So, you know, <laughs> and, acting. Uh, to know, you know, we said Rick Moranis is a killer. Did he, because he didn't kill the dentist. The dentist overdosed on his laughing gas. Yes. Yes. Uh, I don't think he, did he kill Mushnick? Which was an inner, I, I was interested to see in the original that Mushnick was not killed that that was something that they changed for this version yeah um i think yeah i guess technically i think the plant just came down and ate him during the confrontation where mushnick had the gun on him yeah and that was probably a good change because it's you know it's hard to make a sympathetic killer he he certainly i mean he went to the dentist's office to kill him yeah, but I also think it. I think it was played perfectly where the plant was pushed. I'm. I'm also glad that the plant did not mind control him in the in the remake. Where <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, going back to speaking of that mind control moment, something I was going to bring up before. 
Was it equally as weird to you how the pro- when when he was mind controlled and looking for someone that the prostitute was like on every the same prostitute just kept reappearing wherever he walked? I, I figured she was just really trying to get a job, <laughs> but she wasn't chasing him down. He would just like turn a corner and she'd be on another light post, and then <laughs> I feel like that was her supposed to be chasing him down. That she's like, oh, I see where he's going. Let me be there first, and you know it's. You know, like, oh, do you see me now? Do you see me now? And they're like, I, I feel like that was the joke. Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> it, it was funny and entertaining, but it, like, it was strange enough that I was trying to figure it, is, it out. It's probably very much also a, like, why doesn't he see me? Why doesn't he notice me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, is there anything else that you want to say about either of the Little Shop of Horrors? No, I think we are good. Think um, I also gave the the remake uh, five stars. I think it is a perfect film. Uh, so mm-hmm. so the little shop of the nineteen eighty six little shop of horrors is shameless recommended. Shameless approved. Shameless approved. Uh, we're a little behind on our on our um, <laughs> letterbox letterboxed, but it's just because there's so many links and shit. Yeah. The hope is one day we'll have a website and just, you can get all the links from there. Yeah. But we're working on it. <laughs> But no, I gave Little Shop of Horrors, the 86 version, five stars. Uh, and I surprisingly really enjoyed the original, and I gave it four. Uh, I'd go and, three and a half. Um, and the big part, and part of that reason was, too, is I kept thinking, like they made something this good and this entertainment, entertaining in two fucking days. Right, yeah. <laughs> so some of that was, like, uh, just, like, the filmmaker in me has been like, I can't rate this thing low. <laughs> it's watchable, <laughs> and it's fun, and they had no time to make it. <laughs> So I gave that four. Nice. Um, um, okay. Anything else before we? There is something else. I saw one other film today that I just wanted to throw out there because I believe this was another like four and a half five star for me that that I was surprised at how good it was. Um, I believe it was a Netflix original, um, The Mitchells versus the Machines. I want to see that. That looks phenomenal. It. Was I was laughing so goddamn hard, and we watched it as a family, and it's a it's a family film. Um, it was the writing on it is so sharp, clever, quick, nonstop. It I was I was in stitches, and I cannot recommend that movie enough. So if you're looking right, for something well, to watch, check out the Mitchells versus the hopefully Machines. Hopefully, by the time we get an- another episode or two down, I will have time to watch it, and I can report back. I laughed, I cried, I laughed until I cried. It had everything. This movie well, has everything. <laughs> well, I would say if people aren't down with that, I got two words for them. Watch, watch movies. movies. <laughs> The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers. Today's episode was edited by Nick Richards. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The Shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Byers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.